chapter 3, <clears throat> book of Daniel. If you're following in your notes, it would be on page 5. Um, it is, and I, I think I might have mentioned this last week, but if I didn't, I'll, I'll say it again. Um, you really do need to connect chapter 2 and chapter 3 in this perspective. <clears throat> if you remember, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and it was a dream which later Daniel would tell him the dream and then interpret the dream, which we spent all of last week doing. Um, but if you remember, it was a statue, and the head of the statue was gold, and Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel, you are the head. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do in chapter 3? Builds a statue <laughs> of himself, and it's all gold. So there is a connection. This isn't just something he, uh, you know, as a whim decides, well, I think I'll do this. No, he, there's a real connection between the two. But it does show as well, um, I don't know what other word to use, the arrogance of rulers. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a man who is the most powerful man in the ancient world at this time. And so it, it would make sense that he would do that which embellishes and, and helps to feed his power and his view of himself. He was the most powerful man in the world. Mm -hmm. And so what he does is he constructs this, um, this statue. In your notes, I just give you additional detail. That, let me read that. Nebuchadnezzar constructs a huge statue of himself, and the year is 600 B.C. on the plain of Dura. We know exactly where that is. Six miles south-southeast of Babylon, the capital. It was made of wood with a gold overlay. Now that's just some details about it. Puts it in history, puts it where it is. We know exactly where that is. Unfortunately, I can't take you there. Nobody with a sane mind goes to Iraq today. <laughs> As a tourist, uh, someday uh, I'd love to be able to do that. That and Iran. There's so much history that relates to the Bible in both those places. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1. The king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits, and he set it on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. I explained where that is, about six miles uh, south-southeast of Babylon. Now, a cubit is an ancient measurement, which we don't, have, we don't use that. But if we do the best we can to try to convert it into feet, this thing was 90 feet tall. And it was 9 feet wide. So this is a formidable structure. This isn't just, you know, I, I stand Jim up and make a, an image of him, and, you know, it's about, what, 5'8", five, five, 5'9", five, something like that. This thing's 90 feet. And, <clears throat> excuse me, the southern part of Mesopotamia, which is where we are, would be roughly, really where, where Kuwait is today, very close to where Kuwait is today. It's, it's just flat. And so for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, you would see this thing. So it isn't just, you know, four people are going to see it. This, this thing is, is massive. And, of course, it is to exalt himself. Verse 2, then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble. Now, these are all different labels of political officials in Babylon. So unless you really want me to, it's important that we 
go through all of these differences. But satrap, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image of Nebuchadnezzar that the king had set up. So if you follow the language, he is calling for, as an order, every political official in the empire is to be there for the dedication of this statue. Then the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, rulers of the provinces were assembled at the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. To the, then the herald loudly proclaimed, you know what a herald is, so someone who's a spokesman for the king and, and speaks for the king. To you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. At the moment you hear the sounds of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, there was a little orchestra there, <laughs> so to speak, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now I want you to um, I want you to understand what's going on here. I mean, this is um, this is a, there is no equivocation here. There's no ambivalence. It's a very clear order. Bow down, or you're going to die. But the other thing I want you to notice here, and this is really important. It's a little bit unusual. He is establishing a what we would call today state religion. He is merging church and state. That's a, in the ancient world, you wouldn't even talk like that. I'm trying to use it in language we would think of today. He's merging the two. This is the worship of him, his image, and it's ordered by the state with a penalty of capital to capital crime. If you don't do it, you're going to be thrown into this furnace. So this is something unusual. This isn't the worship of Marduk. Marduk was the chief god of the Babylonian gods. There were many, many, many gods. This isn't what this is. Bow down to Marduk. This is bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. This is a state religion. And this is somewhat unusual in the ancient world. Not unheard of, but it's somewhat unusual where you're bowing down to the ruler. The ruler would usually order you to bow down to the gods. But this is Nebuchadnezzar as a god to be worshipped. Follow me? It's very significant. But again, it, it shows the really amazing arrogance of this, this man as well. Verse 7. Then at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the people's nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar king had set up. For this reason, at that time, Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now remember who the Chaldeans are. We saw them in chapter 2. We actually saw them in 1, but chapter 2. These are the advisors. Chaldeans is an ancient name for that southern part of Mesopotamia. That's all that means. But these are the people who are the advisors, and they would use astrology and all these things to discern the will of the gods. Why are they picking on the Jews. Why are they? Yes. They didn't bow? Is that, is that what you mean? Or? 
Well, I, so I'm asking you, what, why, why would they pick on the Jews? Why would they say, we're here to bring these charges against the Jews? Now, this is not a hard question, man. What is it about Judaism that is going to make it very difficult for the Jews of the exile? Remember, the Jews have been brought. 605 B.C. was the first wave. Daniel was part of that. This is five years later. This is 600. There's Daniel, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there are others. Why bring charges against the Jews? What is it about Judaism? It's monotheistic. Monotheistic. And, I mean... Keep going with that. Well, strictly monotheistic and a God who says there are no other gods. But and me. what is his first commandment? Thou shalt worship the Lord God only. Yeah, no other gods before me. Worship the Lord your God and him only. I mean, so it flies in the face of what all these Jewish exiles believe. They are not going to bow down. And so there are three that will be singled out. Now, to be, and I mentioned this in the notes, to, to be very blunt, there is not only, well, these men, and these advisors are not really terribly interested in Nebuchadnezzar's goals. What they're interested in, these Jews are in the government. And we don't want them in the government. Remember, after Daniel had told and interpreted the dream, Daniel became a top official, we argued last week, probably the prime minister, and asked Nebuchadnezzar to make Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego co-governors of the province of Babylon. So these Chaldeans are saying, wait a minute, these young, they've only been here five years. I'm getting animated here. They've only been here five years, and they're in the government? They're leaders? Some of these are more powerful than we are. We've been here all our lives. So they see this as a way to get rid of these Jews. So it isn't only they have the interest of Nebuchadnezzar. They're really interested in their own position. Um, going back to um, the <clears throat> pronouncement of Nebuchadnezzar, um, it's, it's sort of, I mean, today I think we have subtleties perhaps that are somewhat similar. Is this on? Yes. Good, okay. <laughs> Subtleties that are somewhat similar, perhaps even to modern-day America, uh, in that people of faith are asked not to exercise mm -hmm. that faith in the face of government intervention on the grounds of discrimination. And um, I, I think it seems that it just seems very obvious that there's a parallel here, modern day, to what was happening back in 600 BC. Yeah, I think there is, there's, there is a parallel at, at one level. I mean, the United States of America, since it was found, since its constitution was written in 1787, um, has guaranteed as a fundamental principle of our way of life, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, which is how they often put it. And um, the First Amendment, that part of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The free exercise clause is very important, very important freedom. Uh, I do think <clears throat> we are facing the possibility that that uh, is, is going to be challenged in a lot of areas and 
without getting into the political aspects of it. Uh, I, I think that is something that for the first time in our history, since it became, we became a republic with the Constitution, I think that is really possibly being, being challenged, and I think it's a threat. I'm very, very concerned, uh, uh, I don't think it'll happen tomorrow, but I'm very, very concerned about the school I used to, to lead. Uh, I, can, I used to never think I could ever envision a scenario where uh, an institution like ours would have to choose whether we're going to remain open and allow our student to, get, to have the guaranteed student loans in the Pell Grant situation and so on. I, I can envision that very, very much occurring, or that could be taken away. In other words, schools like ours would have to close. I mean, there's no way, there is no way you could remain open if students can't access scholarship money. There's just no way. can't happen. And so, I mean, those kinds of things, because the, and I mean, the blunt, to be blunt, it's the Supreme Court decision of a couple weeks ago. That decision, at this point in time, nobody, nobody knows the implications of this in the next five years. Because uh, I just read an article in the New York Times two, a, week, a little over a week ago. The next agenda for those who advocate same-sex marriage is Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Discrimination in housing, jobs, all of those issues. That's, that's what will prevent that from being applied to institutions. I, don't, I, can't see any, I can't see any barriers to that and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a real challenge. I think it's going to be a little more difficult for this to apply to churches. There is a consistent, there's a consistent stream of case law and precedent that will protect that. But non-church institutions, what we sometimes call parachurch institutions, that is not, it's not going to be as easy. Does that mean anything? Uh, it's not going to be easy to protect that. Okay, Woody, you had a question. Yeah, uh, um, how come you didn't throw four into the furnace? Wasn't there four? Was it Daniel? Daniel, Daniel okay. Was, huh? you're, you're, yeah, we, we're not there yet where he threw them in, but we're almost there. Yeah, the I, inference... How, how many came... Well, the inference we... The only re reasonable inference we can draw here, Woody, is that Daniel is not in the kingdom at this time. I don't think so. I don't think so because uh, when you uh, again look at all of the the titles of the various administrators that are in verse three and then again in verse uh, verse two and verse three, mm -hmm. that would have included Daniel. I mean, but we just don't know. It's okay. the scripture's silent. Well, I was a Some, I thought yeah. Maybe I was getting the names no, up. And one of these was Daniel, but it's not. No, you're right. That's, I'm glad you clarified that. Mm -hmm. The inference that is usually drawn, and it's just impossible to prove it one way or the other, but the inference that's usually drawn is Daniel was out of the province on state business, okay. representing Nebuchadnezzar somewhere. Okay. And I, but we just don't know that. The scripture just doesn't say it. But it, it's an important question because the, it's silent. Where's Daniel? Yeah. Scripture doesn't tell us. Right. Did he bow down? No, 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 I don't think so. <laughs> All right, now, I, I wanted to make sure you got that. Why charges against the Jews? So they go in, verse 9, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, psaltery, etc., etc., 
It's fall down, worship the golden image. But if it's not fall down, it shall be cast in the midst of the base, blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, they are their Babylonian names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are their Jewish names. So they use the Babylonian name. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king. Now remember, the rage and anger is not only because they didn't bow down, but also he had shown favor to them. They have only been there five years. Remember, 605, they're brought, six, this is 600 when this is occurring. And he elevated them to positions of significant prominence in the province of Babylon, one of the provinces of the empire. And so he's saying, how dare you guys do this? I showed you so much favor. Plus, just do the simple thing I'm asking you to do. Bow down to my image. Well, verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? I mean, the language in, in remember, this is written in Aramaic. The language here is Nebuchadnezzar is almost incredulous. I can't believe you guys wouldn't do this for me. I mean, again, in back of all this is the, the, you know, the clearance. Look at all that I've done for you guys. And you won't do this simple thing for me? I suppose there's a possibility they bowed out to him in person when they came into his presence. And so he's saying why. They would have shown, yes, they would have shown, absolutely, they would have shown respect. Uh, I mean, I don't know, um, I don't believe, and uh, I'm not positive on this, I don't believe that they would genuflect and lay prostrate on the ground before the king, but they would bow before the king. No, that's right, it's respect. It's We do the same thing even if you go to visit Queen Elizabeth II in your job here. You might have that someday. She will need that kind of care. So uh, if she does, you will show, you will show her that kind of... Uh, uh, there's a very special way in which you're supposed to approach the monarch of England. It's showing respect and dignity. But that's, he's, he's asking more than that. He, he, the language is it's really... He, he's almost incredulous. I can't believe you guys wouldn't do this for me. Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the flute and all those instruments and all kinds of music, fall down and worship the image that I have done very well. What's he doing? He's giving them a second chance. Now look, maybe you misunderstood. Maybe you didn't get it. So I'll give you another chance. Speaking very slowly to Yeah, right. <laughs> but if you will not worship... You will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Mm. Now notice this rhetorical question. It's actually quite profound. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? It's like a challenge. It is. I don't care what you guys believe. 
I know you're Jews and you have this hokey stuff that we brought from, from Jerusalem that we brought into the temple of Marduk. But no God, no God can recognize that kind of power and save you from a fiery furnace. That's, that's a challenge. It's a challenge of worldviews. In effect, now listen, in effect, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm more powerful than your God. Nobody can save you. When I make the decision, I'm going to kill you. Now, the response of these men is absolutely staggering. Their faith is the kind of faith I want to have. I want to read this carefully. There were 16, 17, and 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's staggering faith. Our God has the power to rescue us. But if he chooses not to rescue us, that doesn't mean he's not God. And we're still not going to do what you want us to do. No conditions. No conditions on their faith. A heroic faith. And that's, that is the kind of faith that I think you and I want to have in our lives. We set no conditions on God. Sometimes God rescues us. Sometimes God doesn't rescue us. Sometimes God chooses to heal us. Sometimes God chooses not to heal us. Sometimes God chooses to protect us from all danger. Sometimes God allows us to go through danger. That doesn't mean he's not God. Amen. And it's, it's the kind, I mean, I, I know, I, I believe I'm not an exception to this. I suspect every one of you in a way, in a way, even though we want to say, I want to be like that, in a way we still kind of set conditions. Okay, Lord, I, I know you're God, but you certainly aren't going to let this happen to me, are you? No God who's really good is going to really let this happen to me. Right, God? You know what I'm saying? It's just the way we even think about it sometimes. But God, whatever happens to us, God is still in control and God is still going to take care of us. Because remember, what is happening today pales in significance to eternity. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's kind of the perspective these men had. And it, it's heroic. I mean, there's just, there's no, uh, give us a couple of hours and we'll think about this. <laughs> Let us go home and we'll talk about it. Uh, we're going to email Daniel. He's way over in Greece somewhere or whatever. Um, you know, I'm making all that up. But it's just, it's really, it's really quite stunning. And so it must have been flabbergasting to Nebuchadnezzar. And so you can see the answer that Nebuchadnezzar gives is in verse 19. And the language here 
Again, this is in Aramaic, and we're translating into English. The language here is really intense. Verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered. Do you understand what that means? I mean, you can just... I mean, there's no... He, you would think he's maybe almost begging these men. I'm going to give you another chance. You guys must have misunderstood the order. And they said, no, just categorical. No, we got it, but we're not going to do it. It doesn't matter what you do or what you say, our God can rescue us. But if he chooses not to, that doesn't mean he's not God. We're still not going to do it. And so Nebuchadnezzar, you can just see, he's, you can just imagine his face is red. You can, you know, his face is, is all of a sudden like this. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, we have, I, want, I want you to, you have to think a little bit about this, because what is going on here? Um, now, as you well know, I am not an artist, so I'm going to do the best I can. What, what we believe, and this is not an original thought uh, with me, and this diagram is horrible, but today, we would call this a kiln. Did you ever hear that word before? Is that a new word? Okay, I think everybody knows what that is. Now, we're talking, uh, as, as you know, this is southern Mesopotamia. It's flat. And what they did, the building materials that they used were bricks. They didn't have granite stone. There are no granite quarries. There are no marble quarries. When they built buildings, they built them, of, built them of dried bricks. And they would fire these bricks in a kiln. Now, in the really ancient period, they would just lay them out in the sand in the desert, and they would get hard just by the tenth sun. But they, they want to make them more, even more able to, to withstand the, the winds of the desert and so on, so they would fire them. Now, this um, kiln was one that was very large where they were making many, 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 many bricks. And along the sides, again, my drawings are horrible, were places where there were billows. Do you know what a billow is? You know what a billow is, don't you? Yeah. Okay. And that, that is how they would intensify the heat as it would like, set the fire, and it would feed a lot more oxygen, which would get it to be very, very hot. So when he gives the order, when he gives the order to heat this seven times more than normal, the only way that is conceivable is he added billows to it. So does that make sense? I'm trying to historically explain this. We know they did this. We have all kind of, on the... Uh, in the in in the many of the drawings on the walls of the tombs in ancient Egypt, as well as some of the things we found, we know how they did this, and so that he is giving this order is explained by something like this, and so this is the opening that he will be able to look into, as you'll see in just a minute. So, verse twenty, and he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the uh, a blazing fire. Now you can you can just understand that time up. It'd be like logs almost. You know what I mean? And they would throw them in like that. You following? Okay. Your silence must indicate that you're with me. Jim, I was thinking too. You know, with that seven times, I thought 
in, in Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, well, you said you got maybe they'll save you, but if I do it seven times, there's no God going to be able to take you. Yeah. Know? That's right. That's exactly right. In effect, what has Nebuchadnezzar done here? He has made this into a contest between himself and Yahweh. Hasn't? I mean, that's really what he's done. In front of all the people. In front. Of, that's right. That's right. In front of all of the top officials of the empire. So I mean, yeah. I mean, this is this is a this is a very significant development. And you know, in Sunday school and, and little children, this is a story that little kids always know. It's kind of an exciting thing. But we got to, for us, we got to ratchet it up. We have to understand the theological dimension to this. This is a contest. And Nebuchadnezzar framed it this way between himself and Yahweh. One thing that's kind of nice here, too, is the, uh, the three participants in this friends that are going to be cast, uh, they didn't say, well, we'll, we'll pray about it. We're <laughs> no. Sometimes that's. That's an answer we give, and um, they certainly seem to uh, at least appear to know where they stood and what they believed. Oh, yeah. I mean, do, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments are clear. Deuteronomy 6, Hero is the Lord your God is one. Don't worship any other gods, all that. They don't have to pray about that. That's clear. This is what we believe, and this is what God wants to do. We're not going to do this. And so I, what I, I really like the whole point of how Nebuchadnezzar is responding to this because it really does make this into a contest between Nebuchadnezzar and Yahweh. Verse 21 then, Then these men were tied up in their trousers, coats, caps, and other clothes were cast into the midst of the blazing fire. Presumably like logs because you know, they were tied up. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had made, been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's really something. So, I mean, it's, presumably the flame's like licking out of that, it's almost like a little uh, neck of a bottle type thing. But uh, they're killed, so that's just so how hot this really is. <clears throat> that verse 23 but these three men Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell into the midst of the furnace still tied up then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste he responded and said to the high officials now remember high officials these are all the top people of the empire was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire, they answered and said, Certainly, O king. He answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed. <laughs> They're tied up, cast in like logs and all that. Now what's happened? They're loosed, and they're walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth now, this is a simile, is like a son of the gods. Now, these, these are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. This is what he's saying. This is how he is describing what he sees. So, what, what is Nebuchadnezzar concluding here? And he says, like a son of the gods. What 
would that look like, the Son of God? Well, that's that partially why I'm asking this question. He, I, I don't know, but what Nebuchadnezzar, listen, what is Nebuchadnezzar concluding? He didn't kill them. He didn't kill them. And he said their God saved them. It's their God I'm seeing in them. I mean that's that's what he's that's what he's concluding, because the uh, the no matter what worldview you have, the only explanation of what he's seeing is a supernatural explanation. There's no other explanation of this. This isn't his first time to the furnace either, probably. Isn't it? Well, that's correct. This isn't the first time he would have had an order like this to execute someone in this way. That's right. Is that what you mean by your yeah. question? Yeah. Right. So I mean, this is this is <laughs> he is he is reaching a conclusion. Yahweh won this one. <laughs> I'm not you know I don't know if he put it that way, but he, the only explanation is a supernatural explanation. So he's saying, I threw in three. I'm seeing four. There's something supernatural is going on here. And then verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the furnace, blazing fire. Response: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. You servants of the Most High God. It's okay, I get it. Yeah. Now this this is what the the, the progression of Nebuchadnezzar is his understanding, because chapter four is what we'll study next week. But you see, Nebuchadnezzar is starting to see what he saw in chapter two, because that was the title that Daniel used, most high God. This isn't Marduk. This isn't Bel. This isn't Nebo. These are the gods of Babylonia. This is the God of Daniel. This is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's really something about this God. And that's what chapter 4 is going to be about when this is personalized for Nebuchadnezzar. We'll, We'll get there. In just a minute, but this 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 affirmation by Nebuchadnezzar is astonishing. The Most High God, He is using the terminology that Daniel used. Come here, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the satraps and prefects and governors and king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor the smell of fire even upon them. Miracle. The only explanation supernatural. And as I think it was Darrow who said, remember, all of this is happening in front of all of the top officials of the empire. This isn't something just Nebuchadnezzar sees. Every person who is a significant person in the empire sees this. So this is a tremendous testimony. There is something about these Jews and their God. And that's, you know, that's how they're going to, the buzz of the empire is there's something about these Jews and their God. Let me tell you what happened on the plane near Shinar. (laughs) So, I mean, it really is... It's a, it, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, took all the implements of the temple to his temple in Marduk of his God. But the Jews' God is confined to that temple. 
What did chapter 2 tell Nebuchadnezzar? The supreme God of this universe has made you king. You are the gold of that statue, but he is greater. Chapter 3, he is greater. Nebuchadnezzar set up a test, and God proved he's greater. So look at the declaration that you see it follow in chapter 3 and verse 28. This is amazing. This is coming from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the defeat at the hands, defeat at the hands of Yahweh. He's acknowledging Yahweh is greater than I am. Yahweh is greater than my God. Yahweh just rescued these men. The Most High God. Then he says, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb for limb, their houses reduced to rubbish heap, inasmuch as there's no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Now, is verse 29 telling us that Nebuchadnezzar is affirming there's only one God in the universe? No, that's not what he's affirming. But what he is affirming is their God is greater than my God's. And so I'm acknowledging that. Don't speak ill of him. If you do, you're going to lose your life. I'm going to tear you limb for limb. This is the language that the ancient kings used. This is this is amazing contest. The Sunday school story is about that's great, but don't forget the theological issue that's at stake here. The Jews are in exile, but that doesn't mean God has abandoned them, that God is weak, that God, no. This is the supreme Lord of the universe. And Nebuchadnezzar set up a test. And Yahweh passed the test. But you still see this, verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar isn't personalizing this. He isn't personalizing. He doesn't speak of my God. Their God. Don't speak against their God. Okay? So it's a, it's a, it's a tremendously significant chapter in the progression that is developing through the book of Daniel. Okay? Any questions now? You know? I, I would, are you going to say something? Yeah. Well, go ahead. I, well, it's kind of interesting that as a result of this supernatural and what he saw, that he wasn't willing to reject the other gods. Yes, and, you know, that's right. You would think that he would have, oh my gosh, this is the supreme god, and that he would have issued an edict saying, this is who we're going to worship That's right. from now on. But he didn't do that. Oh, no, no. no. And he probably didn't have that frame of mind. No, not, it, not, not yet. Yeah, not yet. But chapter four. <laughs> okay, right. But you're right. I mean, all he is doing is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a great God. Don't speak ill of him. But what's going to happen in chapter four? This is why chapter four is such an intriguing chapter, because does Nebuchadnezzar now personalize this? and make Daniel's God my God. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, did you have a question? Well, I forget your first name. Mike. Mike. I was going to say in regards to, like he was saying, 
all these rulers and teachers seen all this miracle and it just shows how evil man is I mean well, because yeah. you've seen it watched it in all the five senses it just shows you how technically I look at it how evil we are I mean well, the clarity. I, I, I thought maybe half the population would repent. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. and no other got there. Yeah. yeah. Well, you were very right. What's amazing, or more amazing, is that the nation of Israel crossed the Red Sea, and mm -hmm. went really within a very short period of time. Oh, absolutely. Moses is up on top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. What did they do? <laughs> this was not years later. Yeah. This is a shh. Short yeah, time th later. This it is shows a, how a few really months, evil yeah. we are. It yeah. does. Yeah. You're right. I mean, after all that they had witnessed in in all of the miracles that got that Pharaoh to say, "Okay, I'll let you go," and then the Red Sea and all that, and then they're worshiping a golden calf. Yeah. And that's a question come up: is Why is God? Why did God? He loves his people. Why did he respond this time, but not whenever we took him into captivity? Mm. But that was because That's he right. had promised them That's right. discipline if they That's rejected right. him. And so That's that exactly was a right. different issue. Now, it's, it's um, you know, he wants God, it's up to him. God can't be boxed in. Yeah. And yeah. he chose to use this as a test to bring glory to himself. Absolutely. That's what it does. It brings Absolutely. glory to, all, to himself in front of all mankind. That's right. The really operative question was, how, how does one develop the kind of faith mm. that these three men have? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they must have certainly invested themselves in understanding who God is mm -hmm. in a way that took that understanding very, very deep. Yeah. Yeah, and I... I in, in in a sense, uh, Jim, we don't know the answer to the details that your question is is uh, really implying. But I think the uh, the kind of faith that they had wasn't something that was developed from a superficial or shallow, cursory study of the law. These are men we would assume that immersed themselves in what we call the law, the Old Testament Torah. And uh, they were absolutely convinced it was true, absolutely convinced it was, it was dependent, that God was dependable. And regardless of the circumstance, he's going to take care of us. I think that faith sometimes is sort of experiential, too. I mean, over time, you see God's faithfulness in oh, one yeah, absolutely. and huge confidence in even greater situations. Absolutely. Which leads to greater faith in the, you know, in the most difficult circumstances. And they certainly must have been through some of that because they could say, Plus. Well, and they had seen, um, and just in terms of the context of Daniel, they had seen that their faithfulness to God in not doing what Nebuchadnezzar's Arioch, the, the administrator, wanted to do, and the diet and all that. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to still eat kosher food. We're not going to do what he wants us to do, and God will protect us. He did. So it's that incredible faith. But what is amazing to me about their faith is even if God chooses not to do it, we're still not going to, exactly. we're not going to doubt him. We're still not going to do it. Yeah. I mean, it, because, and that's the other aspect that is very applicable for you and me. They had the eternal dimension. If we die in that fire, we're going to go to be with him. I mean, we know that. That's what the Bible, you know, that's what the law taught them. 
there's an eternal dimension to things, and that is uh, that is that is what puts the perspective for you and me today in 2015. If God would, if God would, if a tornado would hit this building, we would all die. Yes, not something I would particularly welcome. I don't think any of us would, but I know for certain that the moment I would breathe my last breath to be absent from the body is the presence of the Lord. That's a true fact. And you'd be more real than ever. Yeah, I mean, it's there's faith there that um, affects how we live. But it's not a shallow faith. But, and Jim's correct, it is experiential in that as we walk with God, that faith should strengthen. I mean, it doesn't always, but for most people it does. Your faith is strengthened as you see God keep his promises, what he promised you, I will always be with you. I will not forsake you. Um, that's the only, the only dimension to this that is making applicable sense for us today, because we face exactly the same thing. I think too, uh, following along on the same lines, um, when we see someone on the street, like perhaps, <clears throat> you know, we have walked with the Lord for some time. And uh, we have pursued him. And someone like maybe this is the first real blush he's had with a true living God. And we, as Christians, could cast people who don't believe aside and go, well, if you don't believe that, mm. you, you know, I'm through with you. Now, that's just the beginning because that may be their first experience of seeing something, mm-hmm. not fully understanding what it is but maybe more open to having a Christian share with them mm-hmm. who God is and what this word mm-hmm. is saying so that they are now more open than they were before and quite possibly will put their faith and trust in Christ. We not only talk about our faith, we live our faith and our walk should match our talk. You know, you see so many, I mean, in, in church history, like the Fox's Book of Martyrs, mm-hmm. for example. What an inspiring book that is to read. You see faith exactly like this demonstrated, mm-hmm. and yet they weren't saved out of their circumstances. Or you see these men all lined up on the beach of you know, ISIS, and they're going to have their lives taken, and they think they... I'm not sure there's anything they could get out of their circumstance anyway, but they seem somewhat at peace with what's, That's right. what's happening. Yeah. Martyrdom is, uh, is something in North America we don't talk a lot about because in North America we haven't experienced that, largely because of the Constitution that has protected that. Whereas in other parts of the world, and you mentioned what ISIS did there in the coast of the Mediterranean and Libya, is an example that is happening a lot in in our world today, and I um, I'm wondering if the next generation in America we're not going to see it's going to be a lot more costly to stand for Christ. I mean, and maybe even martyrdom, but certainly I I, I used to never in my lifetime I, I didn't think I would ever live to see it but I can see that occurring now in the United States where Christians there may be Christians that will go to jail over some of the things that are happening in our culture 
it's really um, it's just amazing. The um, the other question that I wanted to just quickly touch on is who is that fourth person? Christ. Doesn't say that. No, I understand. Is it? Because I mean, I think you're right, but it doesn't say that. Right. This. Can I give you a theological word here? Yeah, here, I thought I had. Um. <clears throat> but didn't the king say he was like the son of God or God? Uh, like one of the gods or like him? A son of the gods. This is what is called a theophany. Now that's. That's uh, a big word, and I, I thought, well, I'll just take this minute to teach you a little bit of theology, okay? Right. This is probably a theophany. Now, if you know anything about Greek, you might recognize that's theos, which is the Greek word for God. And this, we get our word um, phantasm or fantasy from that. It's phanos, so it's an appearance of God. Now, you have in the Old Testament, you have a lot of examples of this. Uh, have you ever come across in the Old Testament the angel of the Lord? Have you ever? You know, it's in, it's in, uh, it's in uh, uh, Judges 6 with uh, Gideon, Joshua, uh, as he's ready to enter the promised land in the beginning of the conquest. The angel of the Lord, there are a number of instances where they bow down to the angel of the Lord and worship him. So, to take it to another level, this is probably the second person of the Trinity. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. And it seems reasonable and legitimate to conclude that. This is more than just an angel. So even though Nebuchadnezzar says God sent his angel... There's more than this because this, it seems to be important for us to conclude this is a, no doubt, a theophany. This is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. The second person of the Trinity is always the agent of this, it seems, throughout the scriptures. So it's just it's an interesting theological point. The story doesn't rise and fall on that issue. It doesn't at all. Because the point of, the, of, of this important chapter, we've already uncovered that. We've laid that out in the faith of these men and how Nebuchadnezzar's responding and so on. But it's, it's just, it's interesting to speculate and think theologically about that. Um, and these, these men, their faith and what we can learn and apply to our own lives. And, and I hope as we, the, the one takeaway from the class today is that you have as one of your goals. I want to have the kind of heroic faith these men have. Where I don't set any conditions on God. I trust him completely. And that's what these men had. They had that implicit trust. No matter what God does, he's still God. And we're not going to do what you want us to do, Nebuchadnezzar. We're just not going to do it. All right, let's, um, let's transition now to chapter 4, which we will cover in detail next week. Chapter 4, unlike almost every other part of the book, is a decree. 
It's a decree that Nebuchadnezzar issued. Now, do you understand that sentence I just uttered? I mean, this, what this is, is a copy of a royal decree that Nebuchadnezzar issued. Now, if you look at your notes on page 6, this chapter records an official yet remarkable proclamation of King Nebuchadnezzar. It was issued sometime between 568 and 567 B.C. So if chapter 3 is 600, which we think it is, this is about, uh, you know, almost 32-plus years later. This is near the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign very near the end of his reign. It is an astounding account of a mysterious, troubling dream of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's interpretation of that dream, and God's fulfillment of that dream. As you read this proclamation, it is a proclamation that I was struck with mental illness for seven years. And the object and purpose of that mental illness is that I would acknowledge that the Most High God rules in the affairs of men. And I acknowledged that the Most High God rules in the affairs of men, and I was cured of my mental illness and restored to my kingdom. That's the decree. Isn't that amazing? The most powerful man in the world was struck with mental illness, records it in a decree, and then says, I was healed of this because I acknowledge that the Most High God does rule any first man. So as I also wrote here, did he truly believe that Yahweh is the one and only true God? Another way of asking that question is, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? So, what I would like you to do. Sure, you're probably going to, all of us, until we found the Lord, we're in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were all weirdly crazy. You're, you're really, you're right. Yeah, but it's it's what is really it's absolutely astonishing. There is nothing like this coming out of the ancient world because the kings of the ancient world. When they, when they wrote their proclamations, and some of them we have, the British Museum is filled with them from these Assyrian and Babylonian kings, they always tell the great things they did. They never tell the bad things that happened to them. Never. They never say, hey, I was crazy. No, no. But this one does. This is a brutally honest decree. And so as he, as he ends the decree, and, and I, I don't know if we'll get through all this next week, but I think we will. As, as we get through this, I'm going to ask the question, does the language that Nebuchadnezzar uses at the end indicate a personal faith in the one true only God? Because what he says is, is, is very revealing. And I mean, it is. It's, it's, it's just, it's so astonishing because, I mean, I... I'm an historian, and that's kind of been my, my focus much of my, my life. There is nothing, I mean this, man, sincerely, there is nothing like this coming out of the ancient world. No decrees, no stele, no proclamations, except this one. And so we want to study it from that perspective. So um, 
we'll speculate a little bit on what the nature of this mental illness was, and then we want to spend a lot of time, I mean a lot of time, on the language that he uses at the end. In verse 34, 35, 36, that, it's really remarkable language that he's using. And so we'll ask that question at the end. Do you think we'll see him in heaven? So, you know, I hope you'll, this is the first time we've had any class that I've taught here at this, this class where I eat, each week I'm giving you homework. I don't know if you're doing it, but so I'd, I'd really like you to read chapter four for next week. And at least once, if you can do it twice, and just think about it from your own, from your own vantage point. Is the language he's using in, at the end of the chapter, particularly verse 34 and 35, does that language give us enough evidence to indicate that we'll see him in heaven, to use the language we use in the 21st century? Was he converted there? <laughs> so it's, just, it's, it's, it's kind of a fun thing to speculate about, but it is, it is really, and I mean this sincerely, this is an amazing chapter. Again, it's very familiar not as familiar as chapter 3. Almost every person, pagan or, or believer, heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is not quite as familiar, but it's equally as important because here it's personalized. Chapter 2, the statue that he sees in the dream. Wow, there's something, because this guy Daniel could tell me the dream and interpret it. My guys couldn't do this. Chapter 3, I made up a... a uh, a situation where Yahweh, is he greater than I am? Yes. yes. Now it's personalized. This happens to him personally. And what's his response? You got it? That's how we want to approach it. Okay. All right. So thanks for your good interaction, good discussion here. You're, we're doing what I really want to do with this book, which is not only make it theological, but really get it down to how does this affect each one of us. Can I have uh, uh, in yep. regard to Angel of God? Uh, Jacob wrestles with uh, the angel all in the morning. Is that a symbolic part of where he changes his name? That's Christ, the angel of that we were, you were discussing earlier. Do you remember where he wrestles and, and then he, That's in, he it, says, What's it, your name? And, it, and he yeah. said, From now on, you'll be called no more That's Jacob. Jacob, and yeah, yeah. him. Genesis 32. Yeah. That is also a theophany. Okay. No doubt about that. No doubt about it. Because at the end of the chapter, Jacob says, I wrestled with Yahweh. Okay. Thank you. That's exactly what he's doing. There. Father, we're grateful for this uh, study. Thank you for these men and their willingness to take an hour out of their busy days. And this uh, chapter is a chapter that I prayed that we would apply to each one of our lives. Uh, the details are so magnificent, but the importance is, are we men of that kind of heroic faith where we set no conditions, we trust you completely? May we be men that are men of faith, men that walk with you in faith, men that you are sincere, that are sincere in our faith. We're growing, we're growing in our dependence on you, we're growing in our understanding of you. But Lord, the bottom line is we trust you. We trust you with the aspects and dimensions and details of our lives and help us to represent you well with that kind of faith to uh, whomever we meet, with whomever we touch and rub shoulders. May they see Jesus Christ in us. So give these men a good rest of the day this week. And 
bless and honor them in all that they do and say. Again, might they represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week. Amen.